Today's text is Genesis 1, 26 through 31. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the, of the sea, over the birds of the heaven, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth, and every tree with seed in the fruit. You shall have them for food, and to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. May the hearer of God's word be blessed. All right, guys, go ahead and have a seat this morning. Uh, If you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to Genesis chapter 1, as that will be um, our text for this morning. And we are starting a four-week sermon series on marriage, the first one uh, that we have done as a church, as an actual uh, isolated sermon series. And uh, this sermon series is entitled, Happily Ever After. Um, And because the reason that we chose that is kind of twofold, and I'll say the good part of it first, and that is... That is this, that like, since we were little kids, or since we were old enough to start thinking about marriage and, and life and future and growing up, we've kind of been told uh, this, this, this truth, or we've been, we've been presented this idea, right, of happily ever after. The stories we tell our kids, in fact, uh, this last weekend for Carver's birthday, we were camping out at Buena Vista Lake, and uh, we, they went to bed one night watching um, Princess Bride, Right? Uh-huh, yes, they love it. The kids love it. Um, and so, uh, but there's this idea of, of no matter what, happily ever after. And, and, and in, the, in, the, in the very um, fabric of this idea of happily ever after is this, that no matter how tough times get, you're with the one you love, so it's okay. Right? Like, that's what we're told. That's what, that's what fuels this happily ever after idea. But those of us that are married and those of you that have, have even uh, seen people who have unfortunately not lasted in marriage know that that's not enough. In fact, in John Piper's book, This Momentary Marriage, uh, he says that love does not fuel your marriage, but it is now marriage that fuels your love. And so you see, what I want to do through this, in fact, I, I was writing about it in my devotional this week, so I, I'll just read, uh, read, in order to set up the whole sermon series, I'll just read from, for, to you from my uh, devotional the other day. Uh, this Sunday, we begin a four-week sermon uh, series on marriage. It's, it's the first one that we've done. As I, uh, I feel as though I'm going to come across as angry, uh, as, it is, uh, uh, um, as this bothers me. At first, this bothered me. I can't read my own writing. That's why I keep stumbling. (laughs) Yeah, I should. Let me stand still. Um, At first, this bothered me, but the more I think through it, the more I'm okay with it. 
The series is designed to take a macro look at marriage, its purpose, its commitment, its intimacy, and its goal. As I think through it like that, I struggle to think that God isn't also angry. His church has allowed the world to define and influence marriage more than His Word. Our marriages are just like uh, are just as messed up as the secular world's, perhaps more so since we claim to follow Christ. God help us, convict us, and restore our marriages so that they speak to Your glory and Your design. And so there's this very real sense that within this idea of happily ever after is that does God want His people to live happily ever after? Yes and amen. That's why we hope so much and believe so much and cling so much and are to live for the return of Christ. But see, the problem is is that this happily ever after isn't found solely in the institution or the relationship of marriage. But it's what we're told. Especially if you're in the church, right? Like, if you're a young teenage kid in the church with all your new desires, you're like, wait, happily ever after you get married. Right? It all gets better. Little, little girls, our little daughters, you know, they already... Um, <clears throat> uh, Carissa texted Katie the other day about Isley already wanting to pick out her wedding dress and how nice it's going to be. Right? And so there's this, this part of us where we're at a very young age where it's natural for us to begin to focus our sights and our desires on marriage. And that's not necessarily bad. And, and I, by no means is the purpose of this marriage to, or excuse me, the purpose of this series to demean marriage, but it's actually to lift marriage up and to elevate marriage to its proper place so that God himself is elevated and we see God properly. Um. You see, most people who are married, in fact, I would say every person who is married, entered, marry with an, entered their marriage with an illusion of what it would be like. You had a picture of what it would be like. Oftentimes, the husband's picture of what marriage will be like involves a lot less clothes and is a lot different than what the wife's marriage view picture of marriage heading in looks like, Right? And so you have this picture, and you love it, and you cherish it so much that you just assume that that's exactly what the other person is thinking and heading into marriage thinking, and and that because you have found your soulmate, the one person that you can't live without, that everything's going to be great. But what happens is because we started with an illusion or, or a picture, we end up disillusioned, and then we get frustrated, and we get angry. Right? And we get disappointed and we're let down. And the reason is because we have allowed the world to influence and define our marriage. And so when we're talking about this series, listen, you guys have to know the parameters of this series this morning is <clears throat> for the church. This message is not designed to try and change or, or necessarily, it'll definitely speak against the worldview and secular view of marriage, but the design of this is to influence us as brothers and sisters, those who who uh, have placed our faith in Christ, right? This is to help um, influence and and give us a foundation for marriage. And again, like I wrote, this is a macro view of marriage. We're not going to be looking at the finer things of marriage. We're going to be looking at the big picture of marriage. But the reality is, is as we talk about marriage in the church, and that's why 
marriage conferences and sermon series on marriage are so necessary because the reality is, is that we have allowed in the church our marriages to be influenced and defined by the world. And so what that breeds is that our marriages are just as messed up and our marriages have the same problems as those of the world, which we understand. We're broken, we're fallen, we're going to have the same problems as non-Christian marriages. We get that. But the problem is that typically we look to the same sources as the world for our answers. We look to the same sources that the world does to fix the problems. And that's where, we get into pro- that's where we get into trouble. And so quickly, let me give three messages to singles as to why you shouldn't tune this series out. And for our, even for our young kids. Number one, marriage is ultimately a picture of Jesus and his church. The more you learn about marriage, the more you learn about Jesus. Number two, as a Christian, you are called to be a discipler. And you see, there is a lie that we like to perpetuate. If a, if, if a single man comes up to a married man and, and calls him and confronts him on the way he's treating his wife, the response is, you're not married, you don't know, you don't have anything to say to this. And that's a lie. But just because you're single doesn't mean that God hasn't placed you in the life of married men and women to disciple them unto Christ and to remind them of the purpose and the goal of marriage. And number three is simply, and quite, quite simply, that you might get married. You might. If you don't, it's okay. You see, marriage isn't the goal of life. And in fact, I think that the church's um, idolatry of marriage is what has fed some of the the secular um, desire for there to be same-sex marriage to be held up and esteemed the same as heterosexual marriage. It's because the church has said that you're not really, you don't really count, and, and marriage is the main thing. And so when people want to feel accepted and feel normal, they take what society has said as normal, and then they try to find a way to attain that. But marriage is not the goal in life, but if you do get married, it helps to be prepared. And so for this morning's message, this morning's message is entitled Satisfaction or Glory. And so each message, it'll be a four-message series, and each one is going to pit these two ideas against each other, right? And so as we always do is we're going to take a lie that the world tells us, and we're going to look at the truth um, that opposes that lie. But do you guys realize, and those of you, especially if you're in my missional community, you know this because I constantly take it back to this, but do you realize that all of our struggles in life, and marriages included in that, boil down to one thing, one simple thing. What do you believe? What do you believe? In that moment, what do you believe? And what does your struggle or your frustration or your fear or your anxiety, what does that tell you that you believe about this situation. You see, when it comes to our marriages, what do we believe about marriage itself? What do we believe about our spouse? What do we believe about ourselves? And you see, all of these are where our illusions about marriage comes in. You see, you have a picture when you got married of what the actual marriage, the relationship should look like. You have a picture of what your spouse should do for you and how often they should do it and what it should look like, right? This is whether you're male or female. And then we all have an illusion about ourselves. We all have our insecurities that we think are what define us. 
And so we all believe these things, and all of these things are what causes the dysfunction and the struggles of our marriage. Men and women both have allowed our marriages to be influenced more by pop culture and our fantasies than we've allowed God's Word and the gospel of Jesus Christ to influence them. And so what I mean by pop culture is this. What do you believe about the roles within a marriage? Where, who, who defines the role of husband and wife? Who even defines the partners in a marriage? Where do you get your definition? What about the longevity of a marriage? Who defines that? Who gets to say when enough is enough? By men and by our fantasies, men typically, our illusions are fueled by pornography and our desire to be worshipped. Our desire for our, our spouses to do what we want, how we want them to do it, and we want them to look a certain way doing it. Women, your fantasies typically revolve around romance and rescue. Uh, you know, there's been a lot of writing in recent years about how romantic comedies and, and romance novels are pornography for women because it leaves you wanting your spouse to be more like who you just read about rather than who God has created them to be. And so you have a fantasy and you begin to hold your spouse, your husband, just this is the same problem with, with pornography and men, is you begin to take what you enjoyed about that book or that movie or that video or magazine, and you begin to cast it on your spouse and expect them to do those same things for you or to treat you that way or to talk to you that way or to cherish you that way. And so we allow pop culture and our fantasies to fuel our marriages. And most often, it is in direct opposition of who God is, what God has done for you, who God has made you, and then how God has called you to live in light of being a new creation. And so the lie that I want to uh, address this morning is this, is that marriage is designed to satisfy my desire to be loved, accepted, and cherished. And one of the big myths that I'm going to be attacking uh, in all four weeks is the best friend myth. I am so tired of seeing and hearing the highest compliment that you can bestow on your spouse is that of your best friend. See, we've even allowed this best friend myth to fuel and define our marriages. And we look at our friends and their fake lives on, on Facebook where they want everybody to think everything is beautiful. And so they just talk about how great and their, their spouse is their best friend. And, you know, people who are getting married, where they say, oh, I'm so glad that I get to marry my best friend. Well, what happens when you just don't like that person anymore and they're not your best friend? See, if the status of best friend is what our marriages are to attain, then what happens when they're no longer my best friend? You know that it is actually insulting to your spouse to refer to them as not that it's not that they can't be your best friend, but what I'm saying is that when the best compliment that you can give to your spouse is that they're my best friend, you realize that by God's design, it means so much more for me to call Katie my wife than it means for me to call her my best friend. Do you realize that? See, by doing this whole best friend thing, we're actually demeaning the roles in marriage and God's design for marriage. Do you realize that there's going to be relationships that men have with other men that aren't going to, might not mirror what you have with your spouse and that's okay? And same with women with women. 
no offense, but listen, I love my wife, but she knows that if it's just time to cry, I'm, I'm going to try, but I just can't generate any tears. And that's okay. God has placed other women in her, in her life. Now, we have to be careful that, that, that those other relationships don't begin to take priority over the marriage relationships and that, that I don't just because I know I'm not super sensitive that I just don't tell her and push her to other people because that's not God's design either. But this idea of we just need to be best friends, is, it's just a lie that doesn't help our marriages. We once sat under a pastor years ago that God specifically told him to stop calling his wife his wife and start calling her his friend. Not even best friend, just friend. And that's just so ridiculous. How did God speak to you and tell you to call somebody something other than what he told you to call them in his word? It's ridiculous. And what happens is, is when we look at other marriages and we say, wow, they're best friends, how come we're not best friends? It breeds discontentment. There are so... Listen, think about your own life. Did you have a best friend in elementary school? Was it the same person that you had? Was it the same best friend you had in junior high? And high school? And college? Young? No. They change, typically. Very few people are lucky enough to find a friend that they have known their whole life and stay close with. It's an anomaly. So then what happens when you get married and that's your best friend, but as time goes on, they're no longer your best friend? You go find a new best friend. That's what the world says. You see, you have no right to demand or expect that your spouse live to satisfy your longings to be loved and expected. Do you realize that? You have no right to expect that of your spouse. You have no right to look to your spouse and expect them or demand them to live and treat you in such a way that you are deeply satisfied and your longing for love and acceptance is fulfilled. What you are doing, if that is your expectation in marriage, is you are idolizing your spouse. And you are saying that God has created marriage so that I would be satisfied. And that is your fundamental belief about what marriage is is marriage is the avenue for me to find my deepest fulfillment and satisfaction. But the truth is that marriage was designed to glorify God. That's the truth. And you see, we cannot properly understand the role of marriage unless we understand the image of God. You see, as with all of creation, it's not about us. So if I've told you that the purpose of marriage is not for you to be satisfied and find your deepest level of fulfillment, then what is the purpose of marriage? Simply put, it's to display God's glory. The purpose of marriage is to display God's glory. And what I want to do with the rest of the time that I have this morning is to walk through Genesis chapter 1 and a little bit of Ephesians with you as to how it is that um, marriage displays God's glory. But I am willing to wager that none of us in here walked into our marriages 
Or if you are hoping to get married, you don't look at marriage as a way to display God's glory. I hope so. I mean, listen, I don't say that because I hope it's not true, because I hope it's true. But the reality is, is the chances are it isn't true. I remember the first time um, I went and talked to Katie's dad about getting married and the reasons that I gave. And if any young man ever gave those reasons to me to marry one of my daughters, I would quickly escort them out. And it would be a long time before he got to see them again if he did. Um, and I remember just, and, and Katie and I talking, like we went into marriage like thinking that it was going to somehow solidify us as adults. Like it was going to now qualify us for ministry and solidify us as adults so that people would take us serious. Because we saw marriage as something where people took you serious if you're married. If you're single, they don't. We didn't go into it seeing and understanding that marriage was a relationship to display God's glory. Look at Genesis chapter 1, verse 27 with me. He says, uh, this is Moses wrote the book of Genesis, okay? Um, and he didn't, now listen, we don't have time to get into creation um, and, and all the theories on creation and that, but what I do want to let you know is Moses didn't, this is how most people think the book of Genesis was written, like Moses was sitting there watching God as he created. That's not the way Moses wrote Genesis. Moses lived many, many, many years ago. And as we, to properly understand Genesis, we have to understand that Moses is writing Genesis to the people of Israel to, de- to declare to them the glory of God in creation, okay, and how God presided over creation. So it's Moses, inspired by God's Spirit, looking back at creation, okay? You got that? But look at verse 27 of chapter 1. He says, So God created man... In his own image, and the image of God, he created him. Now, we, could, we would be, Moses knows that there, that could be taken the wrong way if he didn't now add this last part of that sentence. And he says, male and female, he created them. So you see, Genesis chapter 1 is somewhat of a, Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 2, when it talks about the creation of, of men and women, can be very difficult to understand. Um, because it's somewhat repetitive if you don't have a proper understanding. So look at it like this. Genesis chapter 1, when it talks about the eight days of creation, is kind of the overview of creation. Genesis chapter 2, where it begins to talk about male and female, it's a more detailed look at what happened in chapter 1, okay, in marriage, and creating man and woman. But to say that we are created in God's image is not to say that we are God or that we possess the same attributes glory, or the same innate being and worth as God. That's not what we say when we say that God created man in his image. There are two types of attributes that God possesses. There is his communicable attributes and his incommunicable. And what that means is communicate. He's he's unable to communicate or to bestow some of his attributes upon mankind. Does that make sense? We're not infinite. We're not all-knowing. We're not all-present. Those are attributes that God did not bestow on man and woman when he created them in the garden. But then there are other attributes that God does give to us, and this is what it means to be created in the image of God. And some of those attributes are that we have a mind. We're moral beings. We have a will. Those are attributes that we share uniquely with God that no other part of his creation shares with him. Think about this with me for a minute. When a cheetah chases down an antelope and kills it to eat, there's no shame. There's no remorse. There's no penalty to be paid. It's not an immoral act. 
But for humans to kill, even if, listen, if you study even like self-defense killings, the guilt and the shame that, the, that, that the, even if the person was a victim of a crime and in self-defense they took another person's life, the guilt and the shame that that person carries with them through life is tremendous. But we as a people have declared them innocent. We, we as a people say, you know what? If any reasonable person were in the exact same circumstance, they would have acted the same way. And we say that that is just, that that is okay, that that is good, in fact. So if we can declare them innocent, judicially, why is there guilt and shame? Why can you look at them in the eye and say, I would have done the same thing? Because there is a part of us where we share with God, where there is morality. There is a heaviness to taking the life of another human being. Animals don't share that. And in verse 20 of chapter 1 of Genesis, we see that, Adam, that the animals were brought to Adam and, and he named them. And Adam looks around and he sees that there's nothing suitable for him. There's nothing like him. So there is, listen, I don't think, and I, and I can't tell you that thus saith the Lord, but most people when we look at, at the creation of man and woman and we see that God created Adam and Adam was alive for a little bit on his own and then God looks around and says that there's no, nobody suitable for him. Typically, we look at that and, and we think that, like, we question God, like, well, did God mess up? Did God not know? Could it be, and I, could it be, that God did, did that more for Adam than he did for making a mistake? Because we know God doesn't make mistakes. Could it be that God needed Adam to see that a part of his design was not that man worship and be with animals, although that's not uncommon? And that when God fulfilled that need to be with something, that it was a, with a woman and not with another man? Could it have been a part of God's instructional design and creation so that humanity would know that God's design is in fact one man and one woman and there is a uniqueness that they have together and that there is a uniqueness in the way that they represent God together? So in verse 22, we see that there is nothing suitable for man to, to, to be with, to, to help him, to commune with. Verse 22, we see that God created woman. And in verses 22 and, or excuse me, 23 and 24, we see that Adam clearly knew that Eve was for him. Eve was his helper. Adam didn't look at Eve and, and, and see any imperfection. He didn't see anything and say, oh, I wish. Adam knew that Eve was created to be his helper. Now look at what it says in in verse 24 here. Um, uh, Excuse me, it's not verse 24. Um, But but in this, it says at verse 28 that that, um, Eve was his wife. Again, not his best friend, his wife. You see, so there is... There is something unique to humanity in displaying the image of God. But there is also something unique in humanity within marriage of displaying that same image of God. Whether it be community, which we know that that's a part of it, right? God is, is, is in himself community, three in one. But how is it then that God's glory is displayed specifically through marriage? Right? How is it, if, I, if, I'm, if I'm declaring to you that, 
the purpose of marriage is to display God's glory, then how is it that God's glory is specifically displayed through marriage? So the first thing is because together in marriage, male and female represent God in a way that is unique to marriage. There is something in the bond between a man and a woman, two becoming one flesh, that is unique to marriage. You don't find it anywhere else. There is something in marriage where man and woman together, male and female, God created them. And in fact, um, um, in, in verse 28, Moses writes that it is for this reason, marriage, man and woman coming together, that a man should leave his mother and his father and cling to his wife. There is something unique to the relationship of marriage that displays God's glory. And if you look at a typical interaction, but I mean, listen, listen, don't believe the world. <laughs> There's no secret that men and women are different. It's no secret. There is no, you look at even, if you just do a historical study of our country and you begin to look at the declining involvement of men in the lives of children and you see how the effects of a child being raped. Now listen, I got to be careful, I realize that because there is grace in this and God can um, bestow special grace to single mothers and the children of single mothers, right? It doesn't mean that everything is invalid for them because we're all living with the effects of sin, But there is a need in the life of a child to be raised with both a mother and a father. Why is that? It's because they're different. They're different. Women bring different attributes um, and characteristics to a relationship that men just don't have. But God says men need. We need helpers. In verse, we see this in verse 27, where God created them male and female. So God created a man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. He made them male and female. So there is a uniqueness to the marriage relationship that displays God's glory. Now, what is God's glory? Again, God, the word glory means God, is, is simply God's holiness manifested, right? So let's follow the train. What is holiness? Holiness is being set apart. It's being set apart. You see, in the marriage relationship between a man and a woman, there is a unique, God's holiness is uniquely displayed. It's a setting apart of a relationship. Think about the relationship between man and woman to any other relationship in creation. Let's just think about Adam and Eve right now. The relationship between man and woman as God created them was different than the relationship between any of the animals. It was different between the relationship, although man and women did have a relationship with animals because God said what? Name them, subdue them, rule over them, care for them. There's a relationship that we have with the earth. We're to care for it, to be good stewards of it. Moses acknowledges in verse 28 that there's a relationship that a man and woman is supposed to have with his mother, their mothers and fathers. Right? All of this is real. But it's not the same type of relationship that's supposed to take place between a man and a woman in the confines of marriage. And when a man and a woman come together in marriage, the two become one flesh. And so there is a uniqueness to the way that a marriage displays God's glory or His holiness, the fact that God is set apart, He is set aside. 
We teach our kids in the catechism that we take our, our kids through. It says, can God do anything? And the answer to that is yes, God can do all of his holy will. God cannot sin, but that is not to limit the fact that God cannot do all things. There is something that is good, that God has declared good about a marriage and the way that it reflects God's glory. The second way that God's glory is displayed through marriage is that together in marriage, male and female are created, are to create more image bearers. Verse 28, God says, or Moses writes, and God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on earth. And a part of the uniqueness and the display of God's glory in marriage is the ability to produce more image bearers. You see, this command for them to be fruitful and to fill the earth is a direct result of them bearing God's image. They are to produce and fill the earth with more image bearers. And that is to happen in the confines of marriage between a man and a woman. God blesses it. The word blessed means to make more of. In America, we do not need to pray over our meals and ask God to bless it. We have plenty. What we should be praying is that God would take out all of the processed foods and all of the things that are going to make us unhealthy and replace it with good stuff. I don't think it'll happen. I guess it could. <laughs> but we don't pray that God would bless our pray that God would bless our lives and bless our time together around the, the dinner table, right? Yes, but we don't need to pray that God would bless our food. But here, God blesses Adam and Eve together. God looks at them and He says that they are good, and He blesses them, and then He instructs them to be fruitful, to multiply, and to fill the earth. It is a great thing to be able to multiply and to fill the earth with God's image. Although all creation speaks to God's glory and to God's goodness, and although all creation speaks to um, God's character and His being, there is a uniqueness, obviously, that man and woman have, that humans have, in displaying the image and the glory of God. A tree does not speak to the glory of God in the same way that, that humans do. But together in marriage, male and female are to create more image bearers. That is a unique way that God's glory is displayed through marriage. Now, the last thing is that together in marriage, male and female display God's unwavering love for His church. You see, in Ephesians chapter 5, Paul goes through this sequence here where he first addresses wives, and he says, wives, submit to your husbands and respect them and care for them. And he compares wives to the church of Jesus Christ. And he says, wives, you are to act unto your husbands the way that Christ, or excuse me, the way that the church acts unto the church, unto Christ. The church is to follow Christ. The church isn't to resent Christ. The church isn't to supersede Christ. The church isn't to second guess uh, the way Christ has provided salvation and the way that Christ calls people into his church. And then from there, he goes, now, now, now husbands, in the same way, you're to love your wives. You're to die for your wives the same way that Christ died for his church. You see, to be called to, uh, to submit to your husband's wives is not to be called to a lesser role. 
It's called to display God's love for His church in a way that is unique to wives. And when men are called to love and to lead their wives, it's not called to a better role. It's called to a unique role to display God's glory in the way that they love and serve and sacrifice for their wives. And then Paul says, a man shall leave his mother and his father and cling to his wife. And then now in verse 32, Paul ends his his addressing um, the church in Ephesus about marriage by saying this, is this mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. So what Paul is really doing, although these people think that they're being instructed, and they are, but they're being instructed on marriage, what Paul is really saying is, I'm, I'm much more instructing you about Christ and the church than I am about husband and wife. And so there is a unique way that husband and wife in marriage Male and female display God's unwavering love for His church. This is the gospel. This is where um, our understanding of the purpose of marriage really kind of, the rubber hits the road here. What is the purpose of marriage? You see, the world, although we will have the same problems in our marriages that the world has, listen, we have the same insecurities, men, as secular men do. Women, you have the same insecurities and desire to be rescued that secular women have. They're the same. The difference shouldn't be that we try and hide it and paint our faces with all kinds of makeup and false images and Facebook posts of who we want the world to think we are. But the difference is where do we go to fix the problem? Does my wife look to me and do I look to my wife to fulfill my insecurities and to fix them and to make me feel secure? It shouldn't be so. We look to Christ and Christ's unwavering work on our behalf, His faithful work until death to sanctify us and renew us and justify us so that we could be eternally secure. That's not the role of our spouses. It's the role of Christ, and we as His church are to follow Him and to believe that and to cherish that and to lift that high so that the world would see there is a better way. But this mystery is profound, Paul says, and I say that it refers to Christ in the church. You see, there, is, there, there are... De- Listen, I'm not going to try and pretend with you that I understand all the depths of marriage... And I understand all of God's deep designs for marriage. I don't. I don't have all the answers. But I do know that there is a depth of marriage that displays God's love to the world like nothing else. Part of God's reason for marriage is so that we would look to Him and we would see His goodness. We would see His his greatness. We would see His glory, His beauty. And we don't find that in any other relationship or image or creation in the world as we find it in marriage. Now listen, we're going to move into communion. But before we do, let me say a word to those of us, which is all of us, who have not viewed marriage the way that we have, that we have esteemed our spouse or we have esteemed uh, marriage itself above God, or perhaps we're here and, and we haven't followed God's design for marriage. The good news is that Jesus has redeemed all of that.
and yet Christ still died for these very reasons. You see, there is nobody here, no matter what we have done in marriage, outside of marriage, regardless of marriage, that is not redeemable and that God does not want to take and touch. And see, the biggest problem, you realize that the, the biggest promise in all of the Bible is that God causes all things to work together for good. So no matter how we walked in here today, no matter the mistakes of our past, right, as they relate to marriage or as they are indifferent to marriage or have nothing to do with marriage, is that God can cause all of those things to work for his good so that he would receive the glory. So that the world would see that he is different and that he has set his people aside to be different as well. So as we move into communion, the communion is on the side like it always is, and the band will come up in just a moment and begin to play uh, two more songs, as they always do. Um, But before that, if you guys would stand with me, I'm going to pray and give some um, instructions for communion here.